33rd Psalm, the call to worship. Sing for joy in the Lord, O you righteous ones. For praise is becoming to the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Sing praises to him with a harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully with a shout of joy. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of his loving kindness. And by the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deep in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the land stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. The Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart from generation to generation. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen for his own inheritance. The Lord looks from heaven. He sees all the sons of men. From his dwelling place, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all, he who understands all their works. The king is not saved by a mighty army. A warrior is not delivered by great strength. A horse is a false hope for victory, nor does it deliver anyone by its great strength. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope for his loving kindness, to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart rejoices in him, because we trust in his holy name. Let your loving kindness, O Lord, be upon us according as we have hoped in you. Father, let us see this call to worship as something we must do and let us see what this psalm reveals about you and what you work in us. Amen. You may be seated. Psalm 33 which I've called the call to worship. And we, when we began this series on the Psalms, we introduced the, the Psalter, the, the book of Psalms, as Israel's hymn book. And I, I think, I, I trust, as, as we've progressed through this book, we've seen ways and, and for many different reasons upon which we worship the Lord. We've seen in Psalm 1, Psalm 19, Psalm 119, that worshiping, that we can worship the Lord by having a very high view of Scripture. In Psalm 2, we saw that God's people worship Him by patiently awaiting the Son of David, the Messiah, whom God has promised the throne of David, whom God has promised will one day rule the earth. In Psalm 29, we saw that the people of God worship him by having a sober understanding of his person and of his power and his being, his holiness. And the, perhaps the most well-known psalm, Psalm 23, we saw that 
God's people worship him by trusting in him and understanding that there is no lack when the Lord is your shepherd. As, as Psalms has, has been showing us, there is a direct link between your theology and worship. You can't ascribe worth, you can't honor, and you can't revere what you don't know about God and about what he's done and about what he has promised his people. And so that's why the Psalms continually re- remind us, who is this God? What is he like? What has he done? What will, we, what will he do? And, and he calls God's people to respond to it. And, and Psalm 33 is no different. We see in this psalm, in the first three verses, we see the call to worship. Very clear. God's people are instructed to, to respond to God in worship. And verses 4 to 19, the meat and potatoes of this psalm will be the causes of worship. What is the basis of your worship? And then verses 20 to 22 will be the conclusion or the yielding, the results of your worship. Let's, let's dig in, shall we? First three verses, the call to worship. The psalmist gives us an invitation to come and to worship God. He, he summons the people of God. He's not, the Psalter doesn't ask for God's people to come. The Psalter doesn't ask if you feel like coming to worship or if you're willing to participate. The Psalter instructs and commands the people of God to worship God. Why? Because worship, as the Bible explains, the worship is the expected behavior of God's people. It is the expected function the expected activity of those who've come to know God's goodness. Of those who've come to know his power and his might, of his mercy and his kindness, his awesomeness, his sovereignty, praising God for who he is and what he's done. That's what God's people do. And that's the pattern that the Psalms remind us again and again and again. This is your God. This is what he is like. This is what he has done. Now respond to it. The knowledge of God motivates his people to worship. So what should mark our worship? And this intro, the psalm gives us three points. The first is that God's people worship him with sincerity. God's people worship him with sincerity. Believers worship God because there has been placed within them an inward desire. God's people aren't compelled by external forces. They don't have to be goaded. They don't have to be prompted or or pushed or bribed or convinced to worship God. They do it naturally. They do it appropriately because they have come to know his character and his person And the right thing to do is to attribute worthiness to his being and worthiness to his person and to his works. And this in verse one, this this shout for joy, this is a it's kind of a weird word because in the English it's three words, in the Hebrew it's one word. And this word means to to cry or to cry loudly, to cry uh, 
uh, to cry out as if in terror or in distress, to wail. And the word is describing an immediate response to excessive stimuli. And the point is this. Those of you who have children and have walked through your house and have discovered that there, are, that there is a Lego on the ground, when you step on said Lego and your nerves are sending a signal to your brain, do you go, okay, how do I feel about this? Do I feel ouch or do I feel, ah, no, that's not it. You, you, you don't stand there and deliberate and counsel. How do you feel about this stimuli or this sensation? There, 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 there's, there's uh, th- this word for shout is describing that instantaneous, impulsive reaction to something that's happened to you. And, and, and your English translators supply for joy because that, that's, that's the expected context of the people of God, that they have joy and they're, they're urged to respond, to shout for joy uh, because of knowing God and knowing his favor, knowing his kindness and his mercy and his grace. And because God's people know these things about him, we see in, a, in the parallel thought, praise is becoming to the upright. Praise is it, it's, it's, it's expected. It is the appropriate thing for God's people to do. So that is the right response to God, to the people of God, and they don't have to be convinced or motivated or prompted to speak good things about the Lord. They do it with sincerity. The other point is that God's people worship him with music. God's people worship him with music. And this is not to say that worship is exclusively used with music, but that it uses music and it utilizes all sorts of instruments to make to make harmony and to make melody and to tug on the on the emotions and and that how worship is not just supposed to be reading through a, 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 a blatant list of God's characteristics, but it, it it is tied to the emotions and there's a harmony and a melody of the heart that comes out and it's. It uses all kinds of instruments from from the lyre to the harp of ten strings. So the little the little hand the, the little personal harp that you could play in one hand to the, the massive, massive harp that stands on the stage that you would need a truck to cart. Use you whatever is in the orchestra, whatever instrument you have, make melody, make harmony. And sing to the Lord with music. Third, God's people worship him with intentional joy. Verse 3, they worship him with joy that is intentional. And this is, this is uh, opposed or, or in contrast to verse 1, which is that immediate response. God's people aren't driven to worship because of, because of a momentary or, or because of a conditional happiness, because of happenstance, or only when it's convenient or when they have nothing else to do. They worship because they have joy in the Lord. And they have his mercies and, and his graces and his attributes and his person and 
on their minds and they think through the appropriateness to worship him. And when God's people come to corporate worship, they aren't merely going through the motions, but they are, used, they are, they are focusing their thoughts and they are focusing their emotions that they've had all week and with, with, with the result that they bring, at, at verse 3 says, a new song. And they are, to, they are to sing skillfully with a shout of joy. Skill, the word for skillfully implies thought, preparation, effort, focus, time. And so we aren't expected to sing a song one time and then put it in the shredder and we'll never sing that again because God expects something new the next week. That, that's not the idea, which I'm sure the worship team is grateful that they don't have to learn a new song every just to sing it one week and then get rid of it. But this is a, a song that has a newness of vitality, a, a newness of energy and a focus and emotion. There should be a new umph in our praise to the Lord. There should be a new umph every week that is the result of your day-to-day and week-to-week thinking and meditating and appreciating of who the Lord is and what he's done. What the psalmist is saying is that when we come to worship, we don't come to worship with the same pizzazz that you would have coming to a junior high cafeteria lunch. Oh, this again. No, don't, don't let it be like that. Remind yourself of God's person and work and see how good and exhilarating to the soul it is. And those of you who have had children for a long time or those of you who have been married for a long time, I'm sure that we have all discovered new, new blessings within those relationships and new reasons to be grateful and new reasons to be thankful for the, for the blessings that God has brought into our lives. And that's, that's what worship is like. Even, and this applies for every Christian church, every Christian. It, forgiveness is, is one of the most fundamental things that you learn when, when you come to the Lord. But the older you get, the longer you walk on this earth and the more you, you realize what's in here and the longer you walk with Christ, the more we should appreciate the fact that we are fully, completely, undeniably forgiven in the Lord. Worship is what the people of God do, and they do it with sincerity. They they do it with music, and they do it with a joy that is skillful or intentional or focused. And then we get to the, the bulk of this psalm, and, and this section makes me convinced that the psalmist had children. Because what he's doing here is he's anticipating, the, he, he's given the instruction to worship the Lord, and he anticipates, why? Why should I do that? And he gives us not one, not two, not three, but four examples. And these are not, this isn't an exhaustive uh, list of reasons why to worship, why we should worship God, but he gives us four uh, examples of God's worthiness to be worshipped, and th- these are four four um, examples or base the basis for 
us to worship him. And what I want you to do is I want you to look at verses 4 and 5. Those are four lines. Verse 4 has two lines. Verse 5 has two lines. And I want you to see that the first line of verse 4 is going to be, you see how it says the word of the Lord? And then go down to verse 6. What's verse 6 start with? Word of the Lord. Okay. The first half of verse 4 is going to be explained, or or the thought is going to continue in verses uh, 6 to 9. And then uh, the second half of verse 4 is going to be explained in verses 10 to 12. The first half of verse 5, he loves justice and righteousness and justice. That will be explained in verses 13 to 15. And then the last half of verse 5 is talking about the Lord's loving kindness is going to be continued in verse uh, 16 to 19. And you can see... Verse 5, the loving kindness is linked to verse 18. So this is really interesting because the, 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 the psalmist, whoever he was, maybe he was also a preacher because this, this comes across as a psalm or as a sermon within a psalm, as it were. He, he gives us an outline, verse 4 to 5, and then each thought in the outline he expands. He has more to say in verses uh, seven, uh, 6 to 19. So I'll try to make this as simple as I can. So so, uh, first thing he says, the first reason, the first basis for our worship is is that the word of the Lord is upright, verse 4a. He says that the word of the Lord is upright. And this word upright, it means, it means, um, uh, it, it could be used in construction or in building. It means uh, on the level, it means direct, it means clear, uh, unop- and obfuscated, it means um, aligned, having integrity. And, and the idea is what you see is what you get. What you see is what you get. There's no, there's no strings attached, there's no red tape, there's no, uh, there's no fine print. And I'm sure we can, all underst- we can all appreciate something that's upright if you've ever... Uh, you know, bought a house or a car or, or done any, employed the services of somebody when you, you, you put your money down expecting this and you get that. The, the, the foundation of the house wasn't laid right or the, the, roo- the, the rooms were painted wrong or the car doesn't work uh, or the, the launderer couldn't get the, the spot out. Um, or imagine this. I, I know this is radical politician says he's going to do this but then he doesn't when someone is upright there, there's a direct line between what is said or what is perceived or what is seen and what it, what it actually is and when, he, when he's applying this to the word of God what the, what the psalmist is saying that what God has said there is a direct unbroken unobfuscated uh, unaltered clear, on-the-level line between what God said and what is. Does that make sense? What, there's, there, there's a clear relationship between what God says and what God is. God's word is the standard for reality. And think about this. Think about this. In Genesis 1, God says, let there be light. And it, it's as if light 
realizes it's supposed, it's supposed to, it's, it's, it's light's time to appear on the stage, and so light appears, even though half a second ago it didn't exist. Because God says it exists, now it exists. That's, that is a clear line between what God says and what is. Does that, does that make sense? So, and what, what better example of God speaking and, and stuff happening with absolutely no chance of anything getting in the way than in, than in God's word in creation for that, to explain the uprightness of God's word and for A, the psalmist tells us in verse, verse 6, the heavens were made by the word of the Lord, by the breath of his mouth, all their host was created. Everything that is, I mean, think about the, the earth, the sun, the stars, the, the, the entire cosmos, at one point they weren't, and then because God said they are, now they are. Clear, direct line between what God says and what God is let there be light scripture says light was let there be an expanse an expanse was let there be dry land dry land was and on and on with with the sea and the the the, the fish of the sea and 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 the animals of the land and the creeping things and the birds of the air and the mountains everything that is came to be or, or came to is because God says it is. I know that's horrible grammar, but that's the point of, uh, of the text. How powerful is the word that can do that? And, I mean, the psalmist's point is if, if the word of God can do that, how powerful is the God who has the word that can do that? There is God in his infinite wisdom and having incomprehensible, vast banks of creativity, and he willed everything into being by speaking it. And this is a wonderful reminder of how unlike us God is. I mean, I, I, you know, I, I mentioned Legos earlier. I used to fancy myself as being somewhat of a Lego engineer. I, I, I used to be pretty good. And uh, something happened because I struggle with Ikea furniture. <laughs> I am glad God is not like me. All he needs to do is bound up within himself. He, 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 he does, he's not bound by any limitation. He doesn't need any resource. He does whatever he wants, whenever he wants to do it. And guess what? He does it all by himself. He, 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 he doesn't have anyone there you know, looking over his shoulder. No, no, that one goes there. This one goes there. He, he did it by himself, effortlessly, by speaking. And then the psalmist continues, verse 7, he, and this is building the same thought, he gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deeps in storehouses. Now, how, how is this done? Go down to verse 9. For he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. The word of God is that on the level. If it's that clear and that direct, that concise enough to command everything to come into existence, then surely the God who did the speaking, that did the creating, is truly an awesome and powerful God. And ought not that God 
be shown the reverence for being able to do all that he can do? And that's, that's precisely the psalmist's point. Look at, look at verse, uh, verse 8. Because God can do all these things, how should, how should people respond? Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe. And this, you know, notice, I think this has hints of evangelism in it because the psalmist doesn't say Israelites, you know, you good Jews fear the Lord. He says, let all the inhabitants fear the Lord. There, there, there's, there's a hint of, uh, of inviting peop, uh, even the pagans to come and know this God. All the world ought to stand in a sober and respectful reverence. That's, that's what's conveyed in the sense of when it says fear the Lord. A sober, respectful reverence when they have day in and day out the, before their eyes the work of God's hands. Or in this psalm, the work of his words. And how it's... You look out and you see the cosmos and it is more beautiful and it is more precise and awesome than any Rembrandt you will ever see or any composure of Bach or Beethoven. What worthiness to be worshipped. What worthiness to be praised. For the word of, of the Lord is powerful, it is clear, it is upright, it is direct. When God speaks, nothing gets in the way. And then in 4b, 4b, all his work is done in faithfulness. Now go down to verse 10. I'm trying, to, I'm trying my best to point you where I am so you can see what I'm doing. Verse 10 to 12 will expand this thought in 4b. The Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the plans of the people the counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart from generation to generation. This is to say that what, what God does in history, his, his decrees, his acts, his works, they're not subjected to the slightest tinge of futility. They, they are not challengeable. They are not threatened by, by anyone's schemes, whether it's, it's the devil or, or fallen man or even the entirety of nations. They can't hold a candle, candle in all of their counsel, in all of their wisdom, in all of their strategies. They can't hold a candle, candle to the counsel of the Lord. Time and time again, men bring their counsel together and their might and their efforts against God. And whether it's, whether it's their, uh, the, the innumerable campaigns against God's people in Israel or, or even the rejection of the Messiah, what has God done to their schemes? He's nullified them. He has made them fruitless. He has made them vain. He has frustrated them. Now, think about this. If I was a king, I mean, think about the history of the Old Testament. If I was a king and I want to invade this nation, there's absolutely nothing that would frustrate me like the God of that nation drowning my entire army in a, in a sea, in the Red Sea. There, there, or, or sending a solitary angel that slaughtered 185,000 of my troops in one night. 
or in many other cases, causing them to turn on one another in utter confusion and kill each other, leaving behind all their spoils, all their riches, all their equipment. That happens pretty frequently when you read through kings and, and, and the prophets. Or if through political manipulation I had acquired a kingdom and then I'm approached by some magi and I was informed of, of one who was rightfully born king, who's a, who's a threat to the throne that I'm currently sitting on, and nothing would frustrate me more than that child's family being divinely warned so that the child could escape down to Egypt until I'm a goner. Or if I was a uh, religious elite and I and my 69 other uh, compatriots had illegally arrested and detained and condemned and sentenced to death a man who was an upstart rabbi who was you know, muddying my waters just a little too much, nothing would frustrate me than, him, than me successfully sentencing him to death and him dying and him being undeniably dead and him being buried in a tomb under lock and key, and him being uh, under armed guard, and then having him rise from the dead. That might frustrate my plans just a little bit. That might nullify my counsel just a little bit. But you see, time and time again, God is a God who's not challenged. He is not concerned. He's not worried about his enemies. His counsel will stand. His, his counsel is never thwarted. God is never caught by surprise. God never needs, you know, there is no plan B. God doesn't need and has never had a plan B. God is a God who is sovereign and in control and nothing challenges his counsel. He never goes back to the drawing board. Not once. Not once. Well, worthiness to worship a God who not only speaks clearly and concisely and powerful, but also who acts with dependability and surety and reliability that what he plans and what he ordains will stand fast and nothing can change that. What worthiness to worship the Lord and how good it is to know that God can't be once he has decreed something he can't be strong-armed he can't be manipulated he can't be tempted or bribed or outwitted or nothing can change his counsel that's a good God who's worthy of worship I'd say next in 5a the psalmist tells us he loves righteousness and justice. Right? He loves righteousness and justice. And then go down to verse 13. And here we see the Lord as this righteous ruler. He has the right and the prerogative to observe and to evaluate all people according to his own righteousness. And this God who, as the psalmist tells us, he, he dwells in the heavens. He's, he's above every other God. He's, he's above the gods of the mountains. He's above the gods of the, the seas and the gods of gold or the silver coin. And in our context, we would say he's above the god of the dollar and the god of the science lab and the god of the uh, military uh, arsenal. And so God is, is, is dwelling or residing or sitting 
up in the heavens, and he's he's looking down across the totality of the world. And, and so, is he just looking at Israel? Is he just looking at the Middle East? No, he's looking at all the totality of the world. Look at it. it's not just some of the sons of men. It's not just most of the sons of men. What does the text say? What's that three-letter word? All. Thank you, Dan. All the sons of men. All the inhabitants of the earth. God is a God who sees all. In the same way that not one iota of his command or decree can be challenged and not one detail of his work undone, there's not one heart, there's not one soul, there's not one mind that is free from his gaze, free from his assessment, free from his judgment. And there's three words that are given to describe this, this, uh, this activity that God does. He, verse 13, he looks, he sees, he watches and, and, and the psalmist is ex, is exploring his his vocabulary to explain uh, th- that God is very 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 aware of what men do and to what extent does God watch and, and to what extent is he aware look at verse 15 he's the one he is as aware of them as uh, in in the same way that a potter would be aware of the cup that he just made he is the one who has fashioned or, or molded them. And who, who better to know the cup than the one who took the slab of clay and put it on the spinning thingy? I don't know what that's called, but and, and formed it and formed the the walls and put the handle on it and the and the spout and made the base what it is and put the details on it. Who knows more about the cup than, than the one who made? It? Nobody. God's worthy of worship because he sees and knows all men. In this, and, and we're told uh, in the psalm he understands all their works. And this word for understand could be said he, he, dis, he discerns or discerns all their works. He has perfect sight, perfect knowledge, perfect understanding to evaluate the thoughts and intents and motives of the heart and compare them to his own standard, to his own love for justice and righteousness and respond appropriately from that evaluation. Now, if, you're, if you don't know the Lord, this should, this should put terror in your heart. That the all-knowing, immortal, perfect, holy, omniscient God knows what you thought yesterday. If you don't know the Lord and if you have not come to possess his peace, the fact that he knows your heart should terrify you. But if you're saved by him and you've been forgiven by him and you've been loved by him, this should give us a sober comfort. What a worthy God to be worshipped. Amen. Fourth reason, and again, not this list is not exhaustive. There are so many more things that we could 
learn and know about God and praise Him for. But this is just the this is this is like a sampling of a, of a buffet that the psalmist is giving us. The last thing, the last example of God that He gives us for which we the people of God should worship Him is that the earth is full. Five, look at five B. The earth is full of His loving kindness, of the loving kindness of the Lord. first three weren't enough. He, this is a fourth. That the earth is full of, uh, and this is my this is my favorite word in the Hebrew, is chesed. It's great to say it because it clears out the throat. It, but it, 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 translators have struggled with this word because um, some of raise your hand if, you're, if your Bible says loving kindness. Okay. Raise your hand if it says loyalty or faithfulness. Okay, well, I guess, I guess you guys must all have an NASP. Um, translators have, have struggled with this word because in English there is no one word that really conveys the Lord's loving, or his chesed, his loving kindness, his covenant loyalty, his utter commitment to, to place his favor and his goodness on, on the objects of his favor. And this is the, 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 the reality that the whole world is full of the Lord's covenant goodness, that it fills the land, that it goes out everywhere. It, it's just like the psalmist, in, uh, like David. We know, we know David wrote Psalm 23, verse, verse uh, 6. What does he say? The, the surely goodness... And faithfulness or loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life. The Lord's faithfulness fills the land and it goes out. And everywhere you go, God's faithfulness is already there. And this is, I think, the greatest contrast between God, big capital G, and the God's that the pagans worshipped, because the gods that the pagans worshipped, the gods of the nations, the gods represented by the little wooden and stone and metal uh, carvings, were really fickle things, and there would be no guarantee of their favor. There'd be no guarantee of their kindness or their good disposition. And the the old world religions would teach that you you, you do what you could to to hold their attention through merit, through purchase, through sacrifice. You could you could uh, obtain their goodwill, uh, you know, getting them to act favorably. Um, but it was always a roll of the dice. It was kind of like being a pagan was kind of like uh, shopping on the home, home shopping network. You know, you see this product and you order it, and then, and then when it actually arrives, it's absolutely nothing like what you thought it would be, right? You know, actual results may vary. And maybe... Don't tell you know. Don't tell any pagans this. Well, no, actually, no. Do tell pagans this. Maybe the reasons why the results of the of the faith in these pagan gods were so unreliable was because they aren't really gods. They weren't really there. Maybe just going out on a limb there. But this is not unlike the Lord God. This is not like the God whose word is clear, whose works are dependable and steadfast. This is uh, unlike the God who has perfect knowledge of men and what's in the hearts of men, 
whose understanding of men is crystal clear and accurate and right, but he is also a God who is wholly trusted to act in love, in goodness, in mercy, in kindness towards his people. I mean, this is, if the psalmist had a mic, he would drop it at, at this point. It is, it is the, the loyalty of God is wonderful. He is fiercely loyal. He is fiercely committed in his goodwill and his favor and his kindness towards those whom he have, has brought near to himself, through, to, to those whom he's made his own people, to those whose sins are forgiven, to those whom he has reconciled, those whom he's made his friends, his people, his children. The Lord's covenant faithfulness his loving kindness saves and preserves and keeps and edifies and it makes good the lives of those who trust in him that's what his loving kindness is that's what's that's what's in his chesed And that's why God's people are told in verse 16 not to trust in the might of the armed forces. They're not to trust in the virtue of their own strength. They're not to trust in how well equipped they are, how impressive they look. No, no matter how intimidating they, they appear in full battle array with, with, uh, with many strong men who are well trained, who are well equipped who are on horses, or you know, we would look at our army full of tanks and 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 with full of tanks with guns and sh- backed up by ships and aircraft and, and and missiles. Beloved, all these things are not what determine history. All these things are not what determine the outcome of battle. Verse eighteen: The eye of the Lord is on those who fear. Him, on those who hope for his, there's that word again, his loving kindness. Now, this, word, this phrase, I and the Lord, this is a favorable phrase. This isn't like when mom and dad said, I've got my eye on you. That's, that's, that, that doesn't sound comforting. But this is, this is more like, I've got you. I've got you. Imagine when you were a little kid and you're, you're learning to ride the bike and, and mom or dad are, trailing as best they can behind you, holding the bike upright so you don't fall over and scrape your knee again. And they, they, they comfort you by saying, I've got you. The eye on the Lord has got you favorably. To do what? To intervene on their behalf, to do them good, to sustain them, to restore them, to bless them. Look, look at verse 19. The eye of the Lord is on them to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. Beloved, God takes care of his people. God takes care of his people. His person, his power, his might, his judgment, all that he is. Psalm 33 wants you to know that he is the sole object worthy of your hope. God is the sole object worthy of your confidence. And remember that. Remember that in years to come when, when 
when politics and, and, and world events are going to get really crazy. Remember that in years to come when, when, when the political influence of the United States wanes. Remember the truthfulness of the Lord's faithfulness and his power and his might to, to protect his people when rumors about how weak our borders are surface on the news. Look to him. He is the sure ground. He is the anchor for the, he is the ground for the anchor of your soul. And don't let, don't put your anchor in anything else. Not in the dollar, not in science, not in the education system, not in politics, certainly not in self. Put the anchor of your heart and of your mind and of your soul in the Lord alone. And for that, just like the first three points, he is indeed worthy to be worshipped, is he not? Isn't he worthy to be ascribed worth and honor and glory? Worthy to be loved? So what? looking at the last three verses, what can the worshiper of God expect what 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 does all this produce all this worship what does it produce in the heart and mind of a worshiper of that kind of a god what 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 does this yield trust worship produces trust all that should produce trust a, a renewed trust a reinvigorated trust a trust that has been filled with joy that has been Reminded upon what it's founded, or a trust that has been reminded what it's founded upon, what caused it, what brought it about, produces trust. Trust, and the psalmist uses three different words. That the, the psalmists like doing that. They, they like exploring their vocabulary to explain the same thing. He uses, uh, th- he says, he says, trust three different ways. I think your English translation use, t- takes two of the words and translates them both trust. But uh, it says, um, the psalmist says that our soul waits for the Lord. This is wait, waiting is, is um, it's exercising trust and faith uh, in waiting patiently. It's, and this isn't like, to, to wait on the Lord isn't that you, you hope he will act favorably. And he may or he may not. But waiting, when you wait for something, you're waiting for something that you know is going to happen. And you know that the Lord is going to act favorably to you. And you wait for it patiently. You wait for him to act, to deliver, to provide, to intercede, to move, to do what he said he's going to do. And we wait with a great sense of expectation, do we not? God's people don't, don't lose heart and they don't abandon their God. And they, don't go and, they don't go and look for something else when when God doesn't answer their prayers on their timetable. They wait on him because the people of God know there's nothing else worthy to be waited upon. He's the ever-present. He's the ever-reliable. He's the ever-powerful. He's the all-knowing, ever-aware help and shield. He is both 
the defense that his people need and, and the offense necessary to drive off what harasses his people. That's, that's the help and the shield, the defensive and the, and the offensive need that his people have. He is their supply. He is their help and their shield. And for that, they wait on him. And then the people of God also, verse 21, they trust in his holy name. And, and because they trust, they rejoice. And, and what's interesting in the Hebrew is this word for trust. It's actually the way the grammar pl- uh, 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 places it. It is they are made to trust or they, they are caused to trust. It, because of, of all this thinking about God and his promises and his goodness, the result that they have is that they have been made to trust in him. They hope and they place their confidence in the Lord. And then verse 21. Notice here is also a, a, a change of pronouns. Now it's we. And, 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 and the psalmist is concluding with a prayer addressing the Lord. It says, let your loving kindness, O Lord, be upon us according as we have hoped. As we have trusted as we have waited upon you. And what a good thing to pray, knowing the goodness of God's faithfulness, praying that it would be known and seen. And they're not they're not concerned about if it's going to come. They know it's going to come, but they it's this prayer of joyful anticipation of gimme, 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 because it's so good. That's that's how God's people feel about his loving kindness and as we as we conclude i just want you to i want you to see something really interesting about this that that, that this psalm describes what the cycle of our lives should be and god god is god begins the cycle i I guess you could say by being good to us and saving us and and we respond in joy so we 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 respond to him and worship and then and then we think about who God is and we think about our salvation. And we think about his mercy and his kindness and how much we need him. And because we've been meditating on that theology and on those truths about who God is and what he's done, that produces trust in us. And then because we have been led to trust in him, we, we, we respond in, in joyful worship. And at this point, you're now back at the beginning of the psalm. And so then you repeat and you repeat, and that, that this marks what the life of the believer is like, a perpetual responding to God in joy and, ad, and adoration, and then thinking about who God, thinking why you're doing that. And then because you've thought about that, you're, you're led to trust in him, which leads you to, re, re, you can see what I'm, where I'm going with this. The psalm has shown us that God is utterly, utterly, utterly worthy to receive our our honor, our praise, our reverence, our worship. And again, these there are there's so much more we could worship God for. This was just a sampling. His word, his dependability, his awareness and and his loving kindness. Our God is a great God, isn't he? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word that reveals your word, your will.
and your commands to us. Thank you for revealing your desire to us and for laying out clearly what we should do. Thank you for laying before us in this psalm joyful reminders of of why you are so good and why you are so awesome and why you are worthy of our joy and our reverence and our trust. You haven't bent our arms. You haven't goaded us. You haven't pushed us into worship. You've called us, and just because of who you are, we, we respond. And Father, one more thing. We realize that Jesus Christ is all of these truths for us. His word was upright, and that when he spoke, the storm ceased. When, when Jesus spoke, demons fled, illnesses were cured, limbs grew. And there's coming a day when Christ will return and nations will be destroyed by the sword that comes out of his mouth. Our Savior is indeed a one who has a, a word that is upright. And his works are dependable. His works are done in utter reliability. Nothing Christ has done can be or ever will be thwarted. How comforting for to those who are in his hands. Christ knows and discerns that what's in the heart of men. And he knows as those who have been brought near to him and those who have been made dear to him, how comforting is that when Scripture tells us that he is our great high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses and he intercedes to you on our behalf, how comforting to know that he knows our thoughts and our fears and our anxieties and our limitations and our weaknesses. And is, since the day he ascended to sit on the right side of your throne, he has been interceding for his people ever since. And also, he is the clearest manifestation and expression of your covenant faithfulness to your people that, Father, that he would die for sinners. That he would give his life willingly to redeem people who once mocked you and hated you, but have, through his work, reconciled us and and made us his flock. How wonderful is the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to see his majesty and his glory. And just as Psalm 33 teaches us to worship you for who you are, teach us and remind us to worship him because of who he is. Amen.